the Irish Times business podcast in association with Irish Life. Supporting companies and their employees for 75 years. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Hello and welcome to the Irish Times Business Podcast. This is Wednesday, August 26th. I'm Kieran Hancock and on this week's show we'll be looking at the Black Monday meltdown in global stock markets. What does China's recent woes mean for the rest of the global economy? And later in the show we'll be discussing the merger announced today between Irish bookmaker Paddy Power and betting exchange rival Betfair. What are the implications for shareholders of the Irish betting giant and what will it mean for staff of both companies based in Ireland? But we'll start with China and the chill it sent through global stock markets at the beginning of the week. I'm joined in studio by John McMahon as business editor at the Irish Times, Chris Johns, an economist and Irish Times columnist, and Clifford Coonan, the Irish Times man in China. Um, John, we might just start with you. Just just take us through this Black Monday meltdown, uh, why it happened and what exactly it meant. Well, uh, the consensus sort of, the consensus view as emerging now is is that uh, there was a correction long overdue in Chinese equities and it, it finally happened and the, the the proximate reason perhaps is the 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 the, the remimbu revaluation but uh, or any any host of factors but what's sort of emerging now is that really we shouldn't be too worried about that 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 the uh, Chinese market is really a problem just for China but um, what seems to have led to the contagion spread to other markets is what this the Chinese authorities handling of it and their policy responses say about the Chinese economy and the problems there and how they're dealing with it and um, it's just led to incredible volatility as we speak now the uh, it's just after lunch and the Dow Jones has taken off like a rocket having uh, collapsed quite badly last night. And but the Shanghai Composite fell today, didn't it? It, it, it? it again took off quite strongly at the opening and then it fell at the close and now New York has taken off and European markets are following it and uh, it, it's uh, well, it, volatility it, the fact that it's volatile is probably the only thing you can really say and, and whether it's um, panning out now or not is, is, uh, is hard to say. I mean, I wouldn't like to guess. Clifford, we might just go to you. What's the mood in China? I know, I mean, there's been lots written about these day traders um, that are, you know, have, have kind of made a career out of trading in uh, stocks. And obviously, a lot of money has been lost uh, recently. And Alibaba, I see, is, is down below its IPO price. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it's interesting watching this here because um, on the streets, it's very difficult to see any signs of a slowdown. I mean, you see car sales have dropped and... Um, you know, there, there are signs of, of, um, of the economy cooling slightly, but I can't think of a precedent where you've had such turbulence in the stock markets based on negative outlook in it, with an economy that's growing nearly 7% a year. And there aren't really any signs of it slowing significantly from that rate. Um, we're seeing strong wage growth of around 10% every year. Um, non-agricultural jobs are growing faster than they have for, for many, many years. And real disposable income and consumption expenditure in Chinese households is growing very strongly. So the economic picture on many levels is very strong. And um, so against that, also consumption is growing very strongly. Um, so against that background, then you have this, this, this unusual market um, situation, which has caused such jitters all over the world and, and incredible volatility, as John was saying. Um, I'm trying to find out what, what exactly caused this and what, what brought this about is, is really the question I think a lot of people are probably asking now. 
Um, uh, talking to John about this earlier this week, we mentioned that he was mentioned maybe some managers coming back from holiday and suddenly realizing that the purchasing managing manager's index was was lower than expected. Um, but I mean, there's there's all kinds of possible reasons for why it's going on, um, and one of them, I suppose, chiefly that a lot of people are looking at is is um, is the question of whether. Um, the government is prepared to intervene um, at what level and whether um, it's uh, a sign of, um, you know, that, that the Chinese economy is genuinely in, in difficulty um, or if this is just some kind of summertime blues. Yeah, Chris Johns, might just come to you on that. I mean, as Clifford has, has mentioned, some of the um, indicator, economic indicators are still quite positive and yet the Chinese government seems to be in quite a flap uh, about this. I mean, that's probably more the reason why we should be worried because the Chinese government is, uh, and its handling of this um, has been has been quite, um, I, don't, yeah. I don't know how to describe it, it's been quite curious. Clifford's absolutely right. The numbers on the face of it suggests that the Chinese economy is growing fine. It's, it has a target of 7%, which they always seem to hit. Um, that raises a few question marks in some people's mind. Um, there are other indicators that people look at that suggest that the number might actually be nearer four than seven. Um, there's an outfit in London called Consensus Economics that have done a lot of work on this recently, and, and they've produced that number 4%. It's a kind of a whisper number, if you like. And the problem with an economy growing at 4% that's supposed to be growing at 7 it sounds great in this part of the world, that's for sure, um, is that it isn't generating enough employment growth to keep the Chinese Communist Party happy. They're in a flap possibly about that, but they're certainly in a flap about something. Um, and that's why they've moved to um, devalue the, the currency a little bit. Let's keep that in context. And they're clearly in a flap about the stock market. Now, trying to interpret what any stock market does, let alone the Chinese one, is an exercise in futility. Don't, don't bother trying to interpret day-to-day movements. Don't even try to figure out what it is that's driving them. It's herding. It's electronic trading. It's behavioral stuff that um, people will write learned books and theses on, but we will never really understand. It's, it's what it might mean for the rest of the world that's important. And the issue is one of growth. The reason why people get exercised about growth in China, as I mentioned, is because they need to keep the people happy. That's what the Communist Party is trying to do. The deeper reason why we worry about growth anywhere, not just in China, is whether or not it's linked to a debt problem. We're in a country like China has a lot of debt, whether it's personal debt, corporate debt, or government debt, it needs to be serviced. And the only thing that can service debt is growth. If you haven't got any growth, you're going to have a debt problem, not just a debt mountain. If Ireland wasn't growing in the way that we are now, we'd have a debt problem. We've got a lot of debt that isn't a problem because we're growing. And that's true of any country out there that has a lot of debt. So the reason why we worry about growth is not just because of employment, it's because of debt. I have a figure here in front of me, actually, Chris, saying that uh, China's debt-to-GDP ratio is 282%, which is astonishing. That's right. And historically, what the economists tell us is that countries that have debt of that kind of size, that kind of proportion, historically, if the future is like the past, have a problem and potentially a very serious problem. In other words, there is the possibility of a financial crisis, about which we know a lot, um, given our own recent history. This is by no means guaranteed. It's by no means assured. That's looking at all sorts of different data. China has a gross debt of that. Don't forget, it's a lot of assets as well. And the problem with China, not just its macroeconomic GDP numbers, its financial sector, including its net and gross debt numbers, it's all terribly opaque. 
We're not terribly sure what the balance sheet position of China is. They've spent many hundreds of billions of their assets, actually, over the last few weeks trying to prop up the stock market. They've given up now. That's one of the reasons why it's been going down again, is that they're no longer supporting it. So we need to be very careful about making definitive statements about what we know and what we don't know. Sure, the gross debt position of China is very high, but they've got a lot of assets to back that up as well. So it may not be quite as bad as some of the more lurid headlines suggest. Yeah. One of the things that, that sort of is being said at the moment, though, is you know, regardless of whether the growth figure is 4% or 7%, it's how they're actually achieving it as well and whether that's sustainable. It's, you know, the, it's, it's about yeah. these huge levels of state investment, basically. Absolutely. And they're conscious, and the Chinese, you know, the Chinese, the, the Chinese have been managing this since 1970. They started this experiment in 1978, and there have been wobbles, but no more than that along the way. People think that today, for example, is very like the experience they had in 1994, which wasn't very nice, and it did cause problems elsewhere as well. But eventually, it, it, it became okay. So if, if the, the last 30 years or so of history are anything to go by, um, China will manage its way through this. And the transition that they're trying to manage right now, which is the latest in a series of transitions that they've gone through since 1978, is this move, as you just suggested, John, of being this incredible investment-led economy. Their rates of capital spending have been twice, perhaps even three times, our levels here in the West. Um, and that's what's driven that growth over the last couple of decades. That is utterly unsustainable. An awful lot of that investment... Um, was driven by the creation of debt. We know that. And the problem is the return on that investment, the profitability of that investment, just isn't there. It's been wasteful investment, which is why they've got a debt problem. So the transition they're trying to manage is to make their economy look more like ours, which is less capital spending and more consumer spending. So this great transition from an investment-led economy to a consumer-led economy, they need to double, if not triple, the proportion of their economy that is made up of the consumer that's a big, big transition that's going to take many years, if not decades, to achieve. And they're just at the start of this process. It's a big bet to say that they won't manage it. I think it's probably very sensible to say, on the basis of Chinese history over the last few decades, they will manage it. There'll be speed bumps along the way. But it's a big bet to say that they won't achieve it because they've done very well so far. But that is the, the kind of the, the, the key issue, really, yeah. I think, for a lot of a lot of people is will they be able to, to manage this? And that's perhaps why they're putting such store on how they've um, managed, if you like, the minor problem of their stock market bubble. John, in his column in the FT this week, Martin Wolf said the reason we should be worried is because the Chinese government are, are clearly worried. And um, what's your take on that? Well, I think that's what we were just talking about there. Really, if if um, the, the the there is the Chinese haven't been terribly sure-footed in how they've dealt with this their, their stock market problem. And that raises questions about their ability to transition their economy, uh, as we were just discussing, and uh, and their, their, their legitimate concerns. But as, as Chris was saying, it's such an opaque country, and maybe Clifford might, might, might jump in here, that it's, it's, it's really hard to, to, to form a view as to whether they'll be able to do it or not. Yeah. Clifford, just in terms of uh, coverage of this uh, crisis in China, um, uh, what's it like? Obviously, it's got acres of coverage uh, in the Western world, but what kind of coverage is it getting in China at the minute? Well, um, it's been reasonably open, um, but a lot of this started, um, a lot of the whole stock market bubble, if you like, began with the, um, with the editorial in the People's Daily encouraging people to invest in, in stocks. And um, I think um, talking about government's role in this is extremely important because um, how they advertise the stock market was saying that um, most of the companies in the stock market are state-owned enterprises, and they're fantastic examples of, of how a company should be run 
and you will never lose any money if you invest in a state-owned company. I mean, the government is, is you know, encouraging people to invest. It's a regulator, and it also owns most of uh, a large percentage of most of the companies on the stock market. So the role of government can't really be underestimated. And I think what we've seen in the last few days has been um, uh, a fear that, that there is no master plan um, because we've always been quite admiring of the way the People's Bank of China has managed interest rates and it's managed the economy over the years. And then this kind of highlighted that maybe things aren't as sophisticated as people thought, that maybe it was just the, the sheer momentum of an economy of the scale of China growing uh, the way it did once the sort of shackles of central central planning in the pure sense were removed. So um, in terms of the coverage, um, obviously they're not looking very closely at the political dimensions to this, um, and they are looking at the nuts and bolts. And there is a certain amount of scapegoating going on with um, automated trading and things like that. But a lot of it was about um, making state-owned enterprises looking good, driving up the share prices and maybe using that as a way of getting out of the huge debt that a lot of these um, large um, state-owned enterprises are shackled with. So um, the whole government element is a very important factor, I think, in, in the performance of the market and looking ahead then with how the economy performs. And just in terms of the share price falls, the very steep share price falls, Clifford's, that, we, that we've seen recently, mm-hmm. any any sense of how much uh, people have lost uh, on the stock market in China, especially, you know, these people who have been involved in electronic day trading? Um, well, it's um, there, people are losing. Certainly, um, small investors are losing a lot of money. Um, I mean, this is a sense um, I've been getting talking to a number of people um, over the last over the last few weeks uh, since since this really started to kick in in July, and then you know it's recurred. It's been volatile since then, and uh, you, you do see a lot of people who um, who basically have have put large amounts of money. There isn't anywhere else really to invest at the moment because the property market um, has kind of peaked um, and the returns are now very low. Um, and it's very difficult to invest overseas if you live in China. Um, there are a lot of restrictions. Um, so people have had nowhere to put to put their money for a long time. So a lot of smaller investors have been doing this day trading um, and they've been also borrowing huge amounts of money to do it, um, which is another almost like a separate debt debt problem that's that's emerging the whole margin uh, margin lending um aspect to this so um with 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 these in mind you know that there is certainly um the possibility of hardship along the way at the same time the stock market is still a very small part of the overall economy so um if you know in terms of the broader growth picture probably won't make that big a difference even though uh, the political ramifications of of a lot of predominantly middle class um, investors losing losing their savings on on um, the massive share price declines that we've seen in the past few weeks. Uh, Chris, how do you think the Fed in the US or the ECB might react if this instability around China continues? Well, I think most obviously the interest rate hike that many people were betting on for next month is, is almost certainly off the agenda. Absent anything extraordinary. This is in the Fed. In the Fed. And indeed, the Bank of England. I mean, it was a race between those two central banks who was going to raise interest rates first, and it looked like the Fed was going to win. I mean, if the data were to come out over the next few weeks, months, that the US economy has accelerated and that inflation is becoming a problem, neither of which I would expect, then we might well see some those rate hikes come through. 
but the balance has clearly shifted. That this this whole financial turmoil is exactly the sort of thing that central bankers hate. It's exactly the sort of thing that stops them from doing what they were going to do. Um, and it's the knock-on effects, the accompanying effects of the fall in commodity prices, particularly oil, but not just oil. All commodity prices have collapsed. Um, what that means for for inflation, you know, these central banks have inflation targets of two percent, and inflation, give or take, in both the UK and the US isn't anywhere near that. Um, in the UK, it's zero, or well, 0.1 to be precise. And so we're a long way from, from the need to raise interest rates. In my column on Monday, I raised the possibility that we might actually have a fourth round of quantitative easing. And la- people far more important than I, like Larry Summers, joined in that yesterday, um, saying that, that, in fact, the next move for the Fed will be more QE because of what's happening in the world economy. Right. John, we already have QE in, uh, in, in Europe. Um, it is somewhat ironic that over the summer months we were looking at Greece and wondering what um, you know the, the effect around the potential Greek bailout um, how that might affect global stability uh, when in fact we should have been looking at China yes with hindsight we, 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 sh- we should have been well I suppose you know Greece was on our doorstep but at, uh, what's happened in China is, has put uh, Greece in some um, in some some perspective all right yeah how do you see this playing out in Europe what are the uh, what, what are the potential impacts particularly for Ireland well, I, I suppose the main consequence for for Europe will be what it means for the for the euro. Uh, if it if it you know if it leads to a, a stronger uh, euro, that's not necessarily in our interest. But it's probably going to lead to a stronger dollar. I would imagine more than a stronger. The euro, euro has strengthened in the past day or so, Chris, hasn't? And that's one of the many oddities of financial markets that you really shouldn't spend too much time time trying to understand particularly the foreign exchanges. The idea that the euro should strengthen as a result of all of this is ludicrous because if this is actually signalling anything, and that's a big if, it means that there's a global growth issue out there somewhere, that growth is slowing down, that some somewhere is going into recession. That's what lower commodity prices, that's all of this stock market volatility, if it means anything at all, that's what it means. And lower growth or a recession anywhere in Europe just brings all of that Greek-style crisis back with a vengeance. Yeah. I mean, in lower growth in Europe, any European economy going into recession as a result of all of this, which is not what I'm saying, but if that were to happen, in that very technical term used by the markets, the euro is toast. So the idea that it should be strengthening as a result of this is quite frankly ludicrous. Yeah. What about the BRIC countries? You know, these were flavour of the month for uh, for many years, particularly after the global financial crash in late 2008. We're talking about Brazil, Russia, India and China. We've had we've discussed China. Um, Russia obviously is uh, is really suffering because of the Ukraine. Russia is actually a huge mystery. Now, if there is a country where there should be a crisis going on, if there is a country that should be imploding, it's actually from an economic perspective, from a financial point of view, it's Russia. That's the mystery. Why are we focused on China? Arguably, it should be Russia because the, you know, that's an economy, a financial system, um, an oligarchy, if you like, that really only functions with oil above $100 a barrel. And Western sanctions related to Ukraine are beginning, mm. really beginning to Absolutely. bite and hurt, aren't but they? But it's the oil price. Mm. They can't function in the way that their economy is, where Putin has set the economy up. It only really functions from a financial point of view if he's got the revenues coming from oil at above $100 a barrel. At $40 a barrel, his budgetary arithmetic, whereby he doles out money to his mates and his cronies and all the other things that go on in Russia, just doesn't work at $40. And so for me, it's only a question of when rather than if there's a real financial problem. Remember, the last time we had a 
uh, an emerging market crisis in the late 1990s. It started with a small devaluation of an obscure currency, the Thai baht. And along the way, all sorts of things went, went on. We had hedge funds blowing up in the United States. We had Brazilian devaluations, but we also had a Russian debt default. Um, and that, I think, is the sort of playbook that we need to be reminding ourselves of. Uh, before we close this section, uh, Chris, I just want to close to the home and um, just draw attention to some economic statistics out today from the CSO, which showed that unemployment in the second quarter dropped from 10% to 9.6%, and we've created roughly 57,000 jobs uh, in the past 12 months. It all sounds uh, very good news and very timely for the government. Very good news. Um, underneath the numbers, they were across the board. So um, it wasn't concentrated in just one sector. It solved a small puzzle that we've been having, which is that the, the, the more higher frequency data that's been coming out over that period suggests that it suggested that employment growth was slowing down. And that wasn't consistent with what we know from things like tax receipts and other things that, that we look at. So this squares the circle, if you like, that um, the economy is still growing very, very strongly. Um, it's across the board, which is very encouraging. And I would expect, you know, it's ironic, given all that we've been talking about the rest of the world, that just on the back of these numbers, we'll see another raft of uh, economic forecasts for Ireland being revised up. John, in terms of the budget, I mean, it's only around the corner, really. Um, does this give the government yet more confidence uh, to add some giveaways to the next budget? Well, um, in, a, in, in the short term, it does. But I think if you look at the bigger picture, the things we've just been talking about, it probably there probably is stronger arguments for for, for prudence because well, we are uh, in an election year after all. We are in an election year, so I think we know what will happen. But uh, the, the the arguments for a more prudent budget are probably stronger now than they were a month ago. Okay, my thanks to Chris Johns, John McManus, and Clifford Coonan in China. At Irish Life, we can tell you that forty nine percent of employees in Ireland don't think about tomorrow. They don't have a pension plan we can help you help them. Because if you're involved in running your company's pension plan, we can administer it for you. With our member-specific investment solutions, online access for employers, trustees and members, and always on smartphone apps. Just call one of our corporate team on 01704 Visit irishlifecorporatebusiness.ie or contact your pension consultant to find out how we can help your company think of tomorrow. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Irish Life Assurance PLC is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. All information source for Irish Life September 2014. We'll now move to the world of bookmaking. And it's a case of winner all right for Paddy Power shareholders this morning after the company announced the merger with UK rival Betfair. It's a move that will result in a special dividend of €80 million Euros to be paid out among Paddy Power shareholders who will own 52% of the combined business. Joining me in the studio to tease out whether this is a good punt for Paddy Power investors is Barry O'Halloran, the Irish Times resident expert on bookmaking. Barry, uh, first of all, Paddy Power had results out this morning which beat forecast, but um, they, that, that really has been overshadowed by this, uh, this, this merger, this proposed merger with Betfair. Just explain to us what they're planning. Okay, well, uh, fundamentally, uh, this is a straight, uh, almost 50-50 merger. Um, Paddy Power and Betfair are joining forces. Their, um, their, their executives will um, take up different roles in the, in the new position, but in, in the new enlarged entity. So Paddy Power chairman Gary McGann will be the chairman of the combined yeah. entity. Brian Corcoran, who's the head of the executive head of Betfair, will be chief executive. Yeah. 
and Paddy Parr's chief executive, I think, moves to the role of chief operations yeah, officer. Yeah, that's that's correct. So you, you'll have the, the same personalities at the top of the, the enlarged entity. Uh, Paddy Power shareholders will get a slightly more. They'll get 52% of the company that's going to be called Paddy Power Betfair PLC. And Betfair shareholders will get 48%. So it's as, it's as near a sort of perfect 50-50 marriage as you could get in the corporate world, I would have said. And explain this 80 million special dividend that's going to be given to Paddy Power shareholders. Okay, well, this, this is really the tail end of a, a, a new policy that they embarked on under Andy McHugh, who, who took over earlier this year. And that is fundamentally, pa- Paddy Power was a company that never had debt. Um, it's, it's always been a very cash-rich company, and he's decided to turn that on its head and um, have some level of borrowing and start a policy of returning cash to shareholders. And this, this 80 million special dividend is, is, is part of that. There was a dividend payout announced today, and... Um, I'm just looking at the sheaf of papers in front of me. I just can't put my finger on it, but it's 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 particularly generous, um, and um, they're going to get an 80 million on top of that. That's assuming that this deal goes ahead because it is still very it's still conditional, and there's still no certainty that it will happen. And it looks like the talks and hammering out the nitty gritty and the the due diligence, all that process could take well into next year as well. Mm. Why do they want to merge? What's the rationale? Um, I have to admit, I'm, I'm very puzzled, Kieran, by the, the the need for this because there isn't. Uh, and w- when he was asked this morning, McHugh said, "Well, we don't need to merge, but we think this is a really good deal." Uh, I suppose at the back of it, there is first of all there is the attraction that they're likely to 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 make considerable savings from from such a marriage. So you have considerable savings on the one hand. You have a bigger company with greater liquidity, and liquidity is all really in bookmaking um, on the other. So I suppose it's, it's, it must be those fundamental attractions. Um, the, the, the two brands, or all, all the various brands in, in Ireland, Europe, Australia, they will all be retained. So the, the companies that people interact with on a daily basis won't look any different post this. Right. And, I mean, both of them have substantial staffing operations in Ireland. Yeah. So what's this going to mean for employees, particularly here? Okay, well, this was something that um, we attempted to tease out very much at, at, at this morning's press conference, and, and there, there was no information. They're saying, well, look, it's still very early days and nothing has actually been agreed. Um, to, in terms of the numbers, I know that Paddy Power has 5,000 employees, and, and very many of them are, you know, a, a large chunk of them are here. Um, Betfair's operations here, well, it runs into the three figures, probably not a massive amount. Um, I would say almost certainly that there is going to be some sort of shakeout and that shakeout will almost certainly be experienced in, in, in job numbers. Just where that's going to fall, I don't know. But I would be very surprised if um, if, if there wasn't some level of, of, of shakeout at the end of all this. And will Brian Corcoran be moving to Power Tower out in Klonsky? Uh, well, that's the other issue. Um it, we don't know where this company is going to be headquartered yet, and I, I, I'm going to sort of put my neck on the line here and 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 go. Um, well, I, I'm going four to five that it's going to be Britain. Um, I, I know that there are tax attractions to, to setting up shop in Ireland uh, or in the Republic rather than that that and that may swing it, but there is also the regulatory aspect to be considered as well here, and that's a very important issue for Paddy Power and for Betfair. They're both companies that have you know made a point of playing very much within the rules in their you know in their history and i think that 
the, the United Kingdom's regulatory regime is more established, more stable, whereas the Republic is only on the verge of introducing a proper regulatory regime for this industry. And I wonder if they'll ultimately see more advantage in, in settling down in a country where there is a, a sort of a well-bedded-in structure like that. Sure, yeah. No, I mean, that would be quite a move, wouldn't it? Because Paddy mm. Power takes great pride in its Irish roots. I mean, the clue is in the name and it was yeah. established in 1988 and they've really enjoyed kind of putting one over, particularly on the established British bookmakers over the years. Yes, they have, they have. But I, I think that you're going to see... Like, I, I think that this is going to mean a big change in, in culture for both companies. They, they've both sort of played and, and branded themselves very much as outliers in, in, in the industry. And they've done that very successful. And, the, you know, there was some justification uh, behind that image as well in the way that they, they treated customers and the kind of value that they treated customers. But I think that what you're looking at here is the, the creation of an effective corporate giant. And I think that uh, that you know try as they are going to try as they no doubt will once this is done if this is done i think you're going to find it very difficult to keep that kind of uh, to keep that kind of flame if you like alive and, and and i think you'll see certain aspects of both companies cultures falling by the wayside after this is done by the way i mean i i'm i, I still do think there is a chance that they will establish the base here in the Republic and uh, McHugh is very uh, quick to emphasise that there will be substantial operations in both jurisdictions post any merger but I, I just feel myself that the UK looks the more suitable bet at the moment the more likely and yeah. what about uh, their stock market domicile because Paddy Power is one of the large domestic players on the Irish stock exchange we've seen a lot of Irish companies defect to, to London either move their entire uh, listing to London or to move their primary listing to London as CRH did yeah. what's, what's likely to happen with this merge then? Um, they're saying it'll be a dual listing um, now I know say for instance CRH has a dual listing but it has a primary listing in, in London um, I know that uh, McHugh's predecessor Patrick Kennedy when a lot of these moves that to, to which you've just referred were taking place uh, I asked him about it at one point and he said you know to be honest we don't see any great value in it at all we're, we're happy to, to remain listed on the Irish Stock Exchange so uh, it does certainly seem to me that they, they, there will be a, that they will have a listing here and an active listing where the shares will be traded Okay now talk to us about the Paddy Power uh, results because they beat consensus forecasts what were the main takeaways? Well the main takeaways is that the, the um, operating profit is up the order of 30% to 80 million um, the business has performed very well across all channels um, Australia expanded quite strongly the Irish retail business, the traditional bookie shop business with which a lot of listeners will be familiar, that after several years in the doldrums is starting to make a comeback. Uh, the Irish retail business, or the, the UK bookie shops, albeit that's a very small chunk of the, the, the United Kingdom retail market, but they're doing quite well as well. And they've also, um, they've also had a turnaround in Italy where they went, where they opened operations three years ago and which really didn't take off for them but they've had a review of that and that is they're now starting to turn that around as well and that's that's reaching a break-even point as well yeah it's a busy time in irish bookmaking actually isn't it ladbrook's recently exited examinership and boil sports is expanding its operations yeah i and in an odd way um i, I think what happened with labrooks is almost the tail end of the recession because it was the classic case of them paying very high rents or them saying we're paying our rents are way above what they should be in market terms we want to exit that 
I think the dark horse in all of this is, is, is Boyles, actually. I mean, Boyles made a big play to buy the entire Labrox estate when Labrox was in exile on her ship. They were very, very confident that they had the wherewithal to do it and the wherewithal to turn around the business. And now with this, that there is a, um, there's, there's a, an almost rush towards consolidation in, that, in, in the industry here at the moment. I think it would be worth watching to see what Boyle's next move might be. Okay, Barry, thank you for that. That's it from the Irish Times Business Podcast for this week. My thanks to Clifford Coonan, John McManus, Chris Johns and Barry O'Halloran for their contributions. Uh, Sinead O'Shea produced the show with JJ Fernan as sound engineer. Don't forget you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our Business Today email at irishtimes.com. I'm Kieran Hancock. Until next time, take care. <laughs>